Welcome to the Grow Through International Expansion podcast. I'm Oliver Dowson. Let me be your guide as to how businesses, all kinds of businesses, small and large, can grow, solve their business problems, increase their profits, and grow their value. In these podcasts, we talk to all sorts of interesting people that bring their skills, experience, and insights to all aspects of international expansion. I hope you like these podcasts. If you do, subscribe and keep listening every week. We love comments too. And do share and tell others and check out our resources on our growinternational.org website. Hello, I'm Oliver Dowson. I want to tell you today a story about an experience I had on the very first day I ever went to work in London for a big multinational computer company. They don't exist anymore, so there's nothing I can say to injure the innocent. But way back then, a long time ago, um, I received on my very first day a telex. We didn't have emails in those days, and it came from my new opposite number as an executive in Minneapolis in the head office in the United States. And he was asking for some statistics about the British company, the British subsidiary. Well, I'd just started. I didn't have any statistics. I didn't know where to go and get them. And an hour or so later, the finance director, who was my immediate boss, came along, asked me how I was getting on. And so I asked him, I said, I've just, I didn't even know anybody knew I was here, but I've had this telex from Minneapolis asking me for these statistics. Where do I get them from? And he picked up the printout, screwed it up into a ball and tossed it into the bin. And I said, what? Why did you do that? Aren't I supposed to answer it? And he said, no, not now. He said, wait until you get a third reminder. He said, if you get a third reminder, then come and talk to me and we'll decide what we should actually tell head office. They'll probably forget, but wait for a third reminder. And I said, why is that? And he said, well, you know, these guys in Minneapolis, they think they know everything and they want everything. And I said, but don't they own the company? Isn't it their business? And he said, well, it might be an American money, he said, but we're a British company over here. I was a bit shocked, but there it was. Over the course of the next year or so, I went to offices of that company all over the UK doing the job I was doing. One of the things that struck me that's also relevant to this story is that apart from seeing the same logo behind the reception desk, I don't think anyone would ever have known it was the same company. The attitudes were different, the style was different, you'd even think they did different things, even though that wasn't true. And later on, I sort of got promoted and took over the US side of the department as well. My US counterpart left and I was obviously doing okay at the time, or at least that's what they thought. And so they gave me um, the world to look after. I went to Minneapolis and I saw the head office, the headquarters of the company for myself. And boy, it was exciting. It was dynamic. It was great. They were doing all sorts of things. And none of this news had ever reached London, or it certainly hadn't reached me. Might, maybe they had reached London and they'd just been printed on a telex, screwed up and thrown in the bin. In that job, I then got to visit European subsidiaries. And again, every one of them felt different. I felt that they were missing a trick, but it wasn't my business as such. And so I wasn't too concerned, but I forgot about it for years. And then 
Years later, by now I was running my own business, uh, I went to visit what was then a new customer in Detroit, in the USA as well. And we got on really, really well. I spent all day there. And towards the end of the day, one of the managers I was talking to, his name was Joe, said, you're European, perhaps you can help me with a problem. When he told me his problem, I had a sort of sense of deja vu. This guy had been asking his opposite number at their German subsidiary for statistics. By now, of course, email existed, so this was done with email. I asked how many times he'd sent the email. He said twice. He still hadn't had a reply. I told him that, based on my own experience, he needed to write three times, so he should send another reminder. I went back a week later. Ah, he said, do you want the good news or the bad news? I said, okay, tell me. He said, they answered, he said, but it's in German. He was waiting for me to come in to translate, thinking, well, as I was European, I could cover all European languages. There might have been email by those days, but certainly Google Translate didn't exist, and there were no friendly German speakers in Detroit, so translation was a bit more of a challenge. As it happens, I had a trip planned to Frankfurt the following week, and so I asked if I could perhaps go and visit the subsidiary there on Joe's behalf. Maybe I could ask them for the facts and figures that Joe wanted, and maybe negotiate to get them for him. He agreed straight away. It was a very interesting visit. As I sat in reception, I watched somebody putting up posters from the American parent company, but carefully sticking labels over the company logo on every one of them. Then I was greeted by um, the local manager, the person who'd actually sent this German reply to Joe in Detroit. As you're probably going to anticipate, he spoke wonderful English, better than mine, or at least as good. And his attitude was basically again the same. It was, we're a German company and it might be American money, but we do things our own way. Before you run away with the idea that it's just nasty Europeans being anti-American, I can assure you that it's not. I also visited and spent a lot of time over the years with US subsidiaries of two of Germany's largest companies, and I met exactly the same attitudes. They were saying they knew what they were doing. They were just representing their own local company branch or subsidiary, the American one in this case, and what head office in another country, in this case Germany, thought was irrelevant to them. These were really, in retrospect, quite sad, but very salutary experiences. They proved very useful to me. So when I expanded my own business internationally, I made a point of trying to ensure inclusiveness from the start, making sure that we made ways in which everyone in every office could act as part of a team with all those far-flung colleagues that they might never meet in foreign countries with their own culture and languages. I think that traveling internationally is wonderful. My greatest joy in business life is actually meeting people all over the world. So it always comes as a surprise to me when I ever meet people who just want to stay home. I tried to make sure that people traveled between international offices so that they could actually meet each other, therefore. We were a pretty poor company in those days. It was more or less a startup, and travel was much more expensive in real terms than it is today. So we were very limited in what we could do, but we did what we could, and I think it worked. Technology, though, has moved on now so much in the last 20 years that things have changed. There's been a push towards video conferencing for a long time. But there was a time, well, about 20 years ago or more, when it actually turned out to be more expensive than flying. I remember having to go to 
one of the only video conference studios in London, somewhere up near Warren Street, in order to do a video conference with a company in Scotland. And I think it cost them something like um, £5,000 for a 30-minute video conference. Now, however, we've got tools like Skype, Zoom, WebEx, and with any computer, even with your mobile phone, it's easy to see the people you're working with and talking to on the other side of the world. And it certainly makes engaging with them easier. And I wouldn't go back to the old days for anything. It's great technology and it's really, really useful. But I don't think it's a substitute for physically going to visit. And I don't think it solves the engagement problem. More recently, I worked with a company that was a really, really successful at what they did. They wanted to expand and they'd accumulated a lot of cash. Um, so they used it to buy companies that they thought were complementary to what they did. So slightly different versions of the same thing, if you like, or new new businesses that added on to the things they were already doing. So for them, merger and acquisition was their fast route to international expansion. But none of the companies they bought, there were a lot, about a dozen of them in different countries, none of those companies ever became a real part of the business. You know, you still hear optimists talking about mergers and acquisitions as making the whole greater than the sum of the parts. I think that's the favorite expression. These ones were the opposite. They lost value, I think, like a lot of mergers. They just didn't work. The big successful parent thought that the new subsidiaries would be thrilled to be part of a larger family and that they'd gain a lot. The executives in those subsidiaries bought into it, but the rest of the staff didn't. They just thought the new parent company was interfering. They actually spent a lot of time on video conferences. This is the problem, in my opinion, they never met them. They had meetings and video conferences all day long, every day. But the people I met in the international offices told me that it always felt the head office was talking to them rather than with them. Only rarely did somebody from HQ actually go and visit. And when they did, they either sat in meetings during the working day or escaped to their hotels at night. If you want to get engagement, you need to listen and you need to socialize too. People may never like you, they may never be your friends, but you'll learn a lot from them. By seeing them outside the working environment, you learn so much and you can have a good time doing it and they will get to understand the business better. So if you're running an international business, you need to be get out there and see and be seen. Above all, you need to make all your colleagues all over the world genuinely feel part of a single family as best as you can. My own businesses were small. I doubt I ever succeeded as well as I would have liked. But I know that we did better than most and we had a much better international relationship than all the big multinationals that I've visited over the years. And that's actually more than half of the Fortune 100. I have a lot of other tips coming out of this, but rather than bore you now, I've put them all in an article that you can find on the growinternational.org website. I hope you've enjoyed this chat and that you read and enjoy the article. If you'd like to talk some more, get in touch with me. I'd love to hear from you. Thank you for listening. Mm -hmm.